It's Friday, October 28th, 2022, and you're listening to St. Sinners and Salvageables, a Hoover Institution podcast examining America's democratic process and the many challenges inherent in staging elections in these partisan times. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution, and I'm taking over hosting duties today for my colleague Ben Ginsburg so that we can get Ben's thoughts into how the voting will play out on election night and the days and weeks beyond that. God help us all. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, a few things you should know about Ben Ginsburg. Ginsburg, Ben is a Hoover Institution Distinguished Visiting Fellow and a nationally known political law advocate. Ben's past clientele reads like a who's who of American elections. That includes four of the past six Republican presidential nominees. Curious, Ben, as to who the two missing ones are. I think I know one of them, but I'd like to know the other. Here at Hoover, Ben's involved in several projects involving election integrity for the past couple of months. He's been the voice of this podcast, engaging in very thoughtful conversations with election experts from around the country about the sturdiness of our democracy and how election officials are girding for a wave of post-election challenges, disputes, and downright disinformation. Ben, thanks for moving over to the hot seat today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, thanks for moving over to the hosting duties. It's uh, great to, to be doing it. My pleasure, and I look forward to picking your considerable brain because, like me, this is not your first rodeo. You sat through a lot of these elections. I'm going to get to that in a minute, how exactly you're prepared for election night and past elections. Ben, I'd be the Captain Obvious fellow here at the Hoover Institution. If I told you the lot was on, a lot was on the line come November the 8th. There's obviously control of the United States Senate, which is currently a 50-50 tie, as well as the House of Representatives, where Democrats have a five-seat margin. I think the website 538.com, Ben, gives uh, Republicans an 81% chance of reclaiming the House versus only about a 45% chance of regaining the Senate. Let's not forget about governors. 36 governorships are up for grabs. The possibility of some surprises, Ben, in some states like Oregon and uh, New York, which are not in the business of electing Republicans, but those are suddenly very competitive races, it seems. Not to mention state houses and many state, local, and county offices. And Ben, the 2024 election basically begins on election night. The results might tell us a thing, too, about the health of the Biden presidency, plus a few aspirational politicians like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, California Governor Gavin Newsom. Some. Each is so far ahead, uh, so far ahead in the respective re-election efforts. Ben, that they're campaigning not in their home states but other states. Newsom is going to New Mexico. DeSantis is going up to New York State to prop up the uh, governor uh, gubernatorial candidates in those races. Uh, so this is a test for them of how far their reach is. But Ben, this election is also about the sustainability of election deniers, a frequent topic on this podcast. There are election denier candidates on the ballots in many states, basing their candidacies on the notion that elections are unreliable at best, fraudulent at worst. And one other thing about this election, how these candidates fare, Ben, it's a window into the potential of a Donald Trump comeback in 2024 as election denial is his thing. So here's how we're going to do the podcast today. Ben is going to tell us how to watch the results on election night, both with an eye on the prize, which obviously is control of Congress, but also how to judge how well the system is working in terms of votings. Ben, before we get to that, though, first take us back to your days as a campaign honcho, a legal eagle. How did you approach Election Day knowing that there would be legal challenges ahead? Did you just bank up on your sleep? Did you take no-dos with you to the office? Did you work out healthily, eat well? How did you How did you get ready for the crunch of election night? I wish I had worked out faithfully and eaten well, but that was not part of the program. You know, the election night is like a Super Bowl for uh, all campaign operatives, including the lawyers. There's a great deal of buildup. And then all of a sudden, the prize comes. It is a uh, it is basically a one day referendum on how well your product is sold. And so as the lawyer in a campaign, what you're doing is making sure that when the voters vote, that vote is done properly, correctly and honestly on behalf of your candidate. So you may uh, take a look at 
the state laws and what state administrative agencies or courts have done to line up some pre-election litigation. Uh, there's certainly a lot of that going around this year with over 100 cases uh, having been filed, uh, probably two thirds of them by Republicans, uh, not liking what uh, administration, administrative agencies and states have done, uh, and maybe some um, complaints about democratically passed litigation. Uh, Democrats are filing a lot of cases uh, under the guise of this is a way to make voting easier for more people. Republicans argue that there's an intent to get rid of all the standards that make it, but you take a careful look at uh, the laws and the administrative rulings and, and litigate beforehand. For election night itself, we certainly uh, compile all the case law on recounts, contests, and previous litigation in your state. It's all done on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, you recruit the personnel that you need, and that's twofold. Number one, lots of over-caffeinated lawyers uh, <laughs> to both take care of emergency litigation if necessary, and you'll have the briefs prepared for that, mm -hmm. um, and to be available to deal with things that come up in polling places challenges to voters, machines not working, disruptions of some sort. So you'll have a network of lawyers, both for litigation and actually in polls. And plus, you'll be uh, coordinating with the ground game of your fellow candidates and political parties on the ballot so that uh, uh, any complaints of problems in the polls get quickly from the poll workers to, um, to the lawyers. You'll have a uh, roving lawyers who go from polling place to polling place and hopefully not bar to bar on election day, uh, looking for problems and being able to deal with counting when the polls close. You're sure that you've got the personnel uh, in counties to be able to count the vote. And maybe most important for the lawyers, as you hear of problems on election day, of irregularities or improper voting, you're collecting evidence on the spot. One thing that's true, Bill, uh, from litigation that, that goes on is that if you don't have the evidence contemporaneously uh, from election day, it's really, really hard to gather uh, and to have it as active. So you're, you're being sure that you have lawyers available to compile evidence you might need for a future recount or contest down the road. I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben, because uh, I've worked on campaigns um, uh, as well, and they're very emotional experiences for those who haven't worked in them. Uh, you end up believing very much in the candidate. You believe in the cause. It's very hard to accept the notion that you're being rejected by the voters, and your first instinct is to want to change the results. Something must be wrong, and so it's very tempting to go to the dark side and question legality, but it's the campaign counsel, Ben, that has to be the you know the cold water on this and say that, look, as much as you want to go to court and try to change things, you just don't have a case here. Yeah. Uh, often you're in the uncomfortable position as a lawyer saying, you know what, you lost because you have less votes and no, we don't have evidence. And so um, you you owe it to the system, to the, the voice of the people to pay attention to that and not make the responsible claims. Um, there are some elections in the recent past where perhaps that was not followed quite so closely. Yeah. And is that the point where you submit your invoice to the candidate, Ben, or did you do that a little later down the road? <laughs> well, the problem is you uh, you want to 
you want to submit your invoice by election day because if you start to raise that objection after election day, the invoice may not be paid. Also, the money might be gone. You won't get paid. And you know what? It's very hard for losing candidates to raise money. I think it was John Glenn Ben who ran around for like 20 years trying to pay off his debt from the 1984 election. He might, well, and even you know. even Hillary Clinton. Yeah. From from her race. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the 2022 landscape, Ben. Um, beginning with this, the understanding that not every candidate who wants to go to Washington or wants to go to a state capital, Ben, gets there the same way. And by that, I mean, states vote uh, differently. Their processes are differently. Walk us through a few of these. First of all, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, how do, how do they do things? Uh, absolutely. As we've talked about on this podcast, uh, we have a very decentralized uh, election system. And so uh, each state does get its choice on how to count ballots. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are going to come in very late, days down the road probably, right, because right. they do not allow the processing of absentee ballots before election day. It means an absentee ballot comes in an envelope, voter has to sign it, there needs to be a witness, there needs to be dates and addresses on it, uh, and all that has to be processed. Now, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, say by, by statute that you can't do that until Election Day. The theory behind those laws is that if you start uh, processing, then uh, you could have a leak of the actual result. Because remember, the ballots are not supposed to be counted right. until right. all the other ballots. So uh, Republican legislators there have had uh, fears of premature release of absentee votes, which they believe uh, and historically have favored Democrats. Michigan was, was also in the category. They passed a law that allowed the processing two days before the election, probably not enough. By contrast, Republican states like Florida and Georgia and Arizona begin processing ballots well in advance of election day, which, um, which allows them to, to hopefully uh, get in results sooner. And in fact, they historically do. Uh, and Bill, then there's another category of states, and this can really slow down count, where ballots postmarked by election day can come in a period of time afterwards. Mm -hmm. So that's why California, for example, which allows ballots to come in a week, I believe after election day, if not longer, it right. uh, doesn't get results done uh, often until December. So you've got different ways of doing it and not uniformity in when results will be known. Mm -hmm. And Ben, your thoughts on Georgia and Arizona. I think in this cycle, Ben, Georgia might get the award for a state that has just received far too much attention. I mean, the, the attention has been just incredible going back to the first time the words Jim Crow 2.0 were uttered. Uh, the national press, every time I turn around, there seems to be a national story about the Senate race there, or the governor's race. But tell us a bit about Georgia and Arizona. Well, Georgia and Arizona were two states where Republicans got control. And if you'll remember, Governor Brian Kemp and Doug, Governor Doug Ducey in Arizona were two governors who stood up to Donald Trump and said, you know, uh, our election results are accurate because we do any number of things well. And so both states decided to do things even better in their minds. So there were uh, a number of changes that were meant. Great criticism of that being uh, attempts by Republicans to suppress the vote. Lo and behold, Bill, the number of uh, early votes, either absentee or in person in Georgia, 
has, has broken records for a midterm election and is even approaching the uh, levels of votes that, that were there in, in the 2020 presidential race. It seems to be pretty unfair criticism of those two states and their laws being suppressive. Yeah, but they do garner a lot of attention and they'll just be, no matter what the result is, they'll be crying come out of at least one or the Yeah, you know, the six battleground states from 2020 are really the ones that are garnering the most attention uh, on the legal front and really the political front. So you've got Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and uh, Nevada as the ones that are really sort of the magnets for it all. Mm -hmm. which not a surprise is what 2024 might look like as well on election night. So let's go through the states now, Ben. Uh, and we're going to do this uh, based on what time the polls close. So let's begin with the uh, first round of poll closing, which is 7 p.m. East Coast time, 4 p.m. for us West Coasters. Ben, we've got Georgia, we've got Virginia, we've got Florida, Indiana, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Maine. Tell us what you'd like to tell us what's worth watching there. Well, this is all about looking for signs of whether there is uh, a real movement to Republicans or a real movement to Democrats. Right. So we'll highlight uh, the races that will uh, that will really tell you the most about who's having a good night and who isn't. Mm -hmm. um, in Georgia, the Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker uh, is certainly one of the bellwether races. Georgia has a somewhat um, uh, unique law in that they go to a runoff if neither candidate is above 50 percent. Right. So seeing who is ahead and if one of them wins on uh, election night will uh, will really send a message on on uh, what what the rest of the election could look like. And again, Georgia gets its votes done pretty early and efficiently. Brian Kemp is up for governor uh, running against Stacey Abrams, certainly another bellwether race. And Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Uh, is up for re-election. And of course, he uh, stood up to Donald Trump and survived a competitive primary uh, against a Trump-endorsed candidate. In Virginia, there are two Democratic incumbents, uh, Lurie and Spanberger, who are seeking re-election. They're very contested races. They'll go a long way to giving a sign early on, uh, on who's having a good night. Should watch Florida for Governor Ron DeSantis and his margin, which will be, uh, I suspect, uh, used as a talking point on what he should do in the future. He's pushing 55% in some polls, which, if you're familiar he with Florida is. politics, is a pretty staggering number. Yep, uh, certainly true. Uh, in Indiana, the first congressional district in Indiana is uh, a Democratic incumbent. Mm -hmm. How he fares will, uh, will again, be a, a bellwether race. Indiana, uh, the polls actually close at six o'clock, so it uh, it often comes out um, really early. Uh, there's a House race in Connecticut five, uh, and another one in uh, Maine two, where you've got Democratic incumbents, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how they fare in those. And in New Hampshire, uh, there is a bevy of contested races starting with uh, Senator Hassan's re-election against Don Baldock, a, a firm Trump supporter. Right. And then both congressional districts there are uh, hotly contested. 
New Hampshire can often take a little bit longer to get its results done. Uh-huh. And they end up coming up with amazingly close numbers, especially their Senate races always tend to be neck and neck. Yeah. And then finally, uh, the second district of Maine you mentioned, Ben. Yeah. Uh, Poland is the Democratic incumbent. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a traditional battleground state. Uh, Maine does a pretty good job getting its results done, uh, including bank, uh, ranked choice voting in a number of their state races, but they still manage to get their returns in. And uh, that's one to watch as well. And that's the district that voted for Trump in 2016, Ben? Yes, it yes. is. Okay. All right, let's go to the next wave of uh, results, which will be uh, 8 p.m. East Coast time, 5 p.m. West Coast time. Ben, we've got Michigan, we've got Iowa, we've got Ohio, we've got Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas coming into play at that hour. Yeah, this is when um, things will start to get interesting. Now, none of these states uh, are known for getting their results in particularly quickly, Mm -hmm. so that uh, there'll be perhaps projections, but people ought to keep their powder dry for sure. But the races to watch are the governor's race with Gretchen Whitmer running against uh, Tudor Dixon, uh, a Trump-endorsed candidate. Again, uh, a bellwether on what sort of a night it is for, uh, for the former president. The Secretary of State's race features, features the incumbent Jocelyn Benson uh, against a uh, election denier candidate, again, a bellwether for, for that uh, issue. And there are uh, a couple of uh, congressional races, Michigan 7 and Michigan 8, uh, which will which form um, real sort of contrast between uh, mainstream Democratic candidates and, uh, and Trump Republican candidates. Okay. Uh, you listed Iowa, Ben. Uh, you mentioned Chuck Grassley and you mentioned one congressional race. That's a little surprise for this. I thought Iowa was pretty rockward Republicans these days. Yep. Uh, I think everybody has. And all of a sudden, the uh, the very uh, accomplished and noted pollster Ann Stelzer did a poll for the Des Moines Register that showed Senator Grassley only ahead by three or four percent. And because of who the pollster was, uh, and her track record, people started taking uh, taking note. So Iowa Senate goes on the list of states to pay attention to in terms of what uh, what kind of a night it is. And the Iowa Third District, there is a Democratic incumbent. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see if she can hang on in uh, against Republicans in this midterm year. Then you go to Ohio, and of course the Senate race between J.D. Vance uh, and uh, and uh, Tim Ryan is one of those ones that will be watched. Uh, there's a Cincinnati-based district, Ohio one. Steve Chabot, the longtime Republican incumbent, has also gone on the watch list of both political parties. Uh, that race could get called early uh, in Ohio. Uh, Texas is a quite Republican state. Uh, Governor Abbott versus the infamous and famous Beto O'Rourke. Again, uh, you know, Democrats perpetually see that Texas is turning blue and it never quite happens. And and we'll see. Uh, Texas in the past has had a lot of uh, contentious and contested uh, congressional races. After the redistricting, there are far fewer contested districts. Look for Texas 15, which is a new seat. Uh, and then 
another new seat that's been drawn in South Texas along the border that will be an indication of Republican uh, success with Hispanic voters in this election. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, Ben, we go to Oklahoma and Kansas. Two sort of interesting gubernatorial races. The incumbent in Oklahoma, uh, Stitt, was expected to win easily. All of a sudden, that race has closed and tightened. And it being Oklahoma, people aren't quite sure why, but it's what the polls show, so it goes on the watch list. And in Kansas, uh, the governor is Democrat Laura Kelly. And uh, it'll be, uh, uh, again, an indication of whether an incumbent governor can win re-election in Kansas in a midterm year. Very well put. All right, Ben, let's move on now to the nine o'clock hour and another wave of results. Uh, here we have Arizona, Colorado, and New Mexico. Let's work backwards. In Mexico, uh, the governor there, uh, Lujan, uh, uh, the Grisham, Lujan Grisham race, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Gavin Newsom uh, is uh, popping over from California to uh, campaign on the governor's behalf. So must be a competitive race. It is a competitive race, kind of surprisingly so, because New Mexico has tended to be a uh, a bluer and bluer state. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, this is one where the polls are sending up warning flags. So it'll be an indication of a Democrat in in how they do in this potentially Republican wave year. Um, And also uh, an indication of how Republicans are doing with the Hispanic vote. Yeah. Uh, I think also, Ben, the base in New Mexico, you don't send Gavin Newsom into your state to campaign for you or if you're a centrist candidate. You were trying to pump up your base and Newsom's going to come mm-hmm. in. And he's going to talk abortion rights and MAGA and the awfulness of the existence of Texas and Florida and so forth. So that to me is about getting Democrats to turn out plain and simple. Yeah, I think that's right. It is a Democratic state. And I think it shows the, you say, the worry about our base. OK, uh, walk us through Colorado, Ben. Well, Colorado is the the first of the states that vote only by mail. Right. So it's uh, it is a different sort of election, a different sort of account. They certainly allow the processing of ballots, not the counting, the processing of ballots, well before the uh, the election. Uh, the Senate race is a race where incumbent Michael Bennett is on the watch list. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Colorado is perceived as a pretty purple state, the Republican nominee, uh, Joe O'Day, has, has uh, had some critical words for Donald Trump. So it is an interesting race to see if a Republican who is not a deep Trumpian uh, Republican can be successful in Colorado. Um, there's also the Colorado 7th District uh, is an open seat. And that will be uh, one of those uh, races you want to watch to, to see which to, to gauge the party's success. And uh, the state legislature, which will not be known for a while, certainly not on election night, is now Democratic, but after uh, the redistricting uh, this past time could switch around. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Colorado is interesting for a couple of reasons, Ben. First of all, <clears throat> uh, it is a very purplish state in terms of uh, it's a mixture of both left and right. Anytime California does something very cutting edge, uh, especially on the initiative front, let's say marijuana legalization, you oftentimes find that uh, Colorado has beaten California to the punch, Washington State as well. So it's interesting in that regard. Uh, but secondly, the Senate race, Ben, uh, just like the race in New Mexico and the race in uh, Washington State, which we'll get to in a minute, these are kind of what I think are high watermark races. And that it's a question of how high, how high the Republican tide is going to be on election night. And, you know, if the tide is relatively healthy, then you would say, OK, Republicans have a shot at picking up, let's say, Georgia. But if the tide really rises, then you would have to look at Colorado as a state that would be in play. Yeah, I think that's really well said and exactly right for people who will be following along on election. OK, now the elephant in the room, or at least the elephant in the nine o'clock bunch, uh, Ben, and that is the great state of Arizona. Where, where to begin? Yeah, where to begin is right. I mean, a ground zero state in 2020, even more so now with a full uh, slate of MAGA election denying Trump candidates uh, for governor, for Senate, for secretary of state. All of them will be will be uh, bellwether uh, districts to say the least uh, in, in the governor's race. Uh, you've got Carrie Lake, the former television newscaster, uh, versus Katie Hobbs, the incumbent Secretary of State. Uh, Carrie Lake, by all polls, seems to be peaking uh, right about now. And uh, uh, Katie Hobbs refused to debate her because she said she didn't want to give uh, any more visibility to the views of Carrie Lake, who now indeed may be the new governor. Of, uh, of Colorado. In the Senate, you have Mark Kelly uh, as the Democratic incumbent, squaring off against Blake Masters, who is a protege of the Silicon Valley's, well, used to be the Silicon Valley's Peter Thiel. Right. Um, uh, again, uh, MAGA versus a moderate Democrat uh, to see. Secretary of State is Mark Fincham, is the, uh, has really started a coalition of uh, secretaries of state who have uh, expressed a great deal of doubt about the accuracy of the 2020 election, who are seeking to get in positions of uh, actually running those elections, be uh, uh, an interesting race to watch, but also keep our eyes down the road for the the Arizona Senate. Uh, Again, uh, the recent redistricting, uh, in theory, has given the Democrats a shot at taking over that legislative chamber, but um, worth watching to, to get a sense. Ben, Arizona to me is the classic case of what happens if the dog catches the car. And in this regard, you have Kerry Lake as a governor, you have Mr. Fincham as your secretary of state, and perhaps a Republican legislature. What do they do if they have power? Really the million dollar question. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the Republican panoply of, of legislative goals, you know, they've been all Republican up till this point as well. The real difference will be the the sort of uh, Trumpian influence in the state because Doug Ducey and uh, some of the the Republican senators who have retired uh, were sort of more traditional Republicans than the people who are running to replace them. 
Well put. All right, Ben, let's move on to 10 p.m. East Coast time, 7 p.m. Uh, West Coast time. And we have, um, let's see what we have here. We have Nevada and we have Utah to look at. Uh, quickly, Utah, that's the Senate race, Mike Lee, who may or may not be in trouble. I think it's a three-way race. The polls are tight and he is out uh, telling everyone who listen that he's in trouble. Yeah, actually, the Democratic Party has endorsed Evan McMullen, who is running as an independent and who you may recall as an independent candidate for president in 2020, who did not see a whole lot of success. Uh, interestingly, my old boss, Mitt Romney, has endorsed uh, Evan McMullen over his Senate colleague, Mike Lee. So uh, look for that as a little bit of a temperature gauge as well. I noticed Mitt's also put his uh, Park uh, City residence up for sale. So maybe, maybe he's looking for one less place where people, angry voters can go hunt him down. Well, I think he still wants to stay in Utah because he is representing the state after all. Okay. And then, Ben, uh, also at 10 p.m., like Arizona, another important state to look at, that is Nevada uh, here. Boy, you just got a got a full feast here. You got the governor, you got the Senate, you got the secretary of state, congressional races, assembly races, you name it, Nevada has it. Yes, it certainly does. And uh, the polling has been trending Republican there, which puts the uh, incumbent governor, Brian Sislock, in uh, in a bit of trouble. The incumbent Democratic Senator, uh, Cortez Mastro, is running against Adam Laxalt, the, uh, the namesake of the legendary Nevada Senator. And in Secretary of State, you've got Jim Martian, who is one of the, uh, one of the election denier caucus uh, running for Secretary of State. And the Nevada Assembly, which is now Democratic, could flip to Republican as well. So it's a state where uh, Democratic power could be waning and Republican power uh, ascendant. There are uh, two congressional races to watch, uh, uh, Nevada first and Nevada three, um, both of which uh, will be uh, will be important to see if there's a, a red wave or not. Right. Uh, I know Nevada is important in terms of measuring where the Latino vote goes, especially in Clark County. Uh, but Ben, when we look at election denialism, um, you look at Arizona, you look at Nevada. Is this really more the same in Nevada, or are these states a little more nuanced in terms of uh, their problems with the system? Uh, well, you know, they're they're pretty similar uh, in the sense that there is just a general sort of uh, belief that elections are fraudulent without a whole lot of evidence uh, being able to be proved. I mean, at one point, uh, the Trump forces after 2020 said that Nevada would be the treasure trove where they would absolutely prove fraud. Uh, that never came to be. Uh, Arizona votes much more absentee than Nevada does, so that the uh, the question of the system becomes a little bit different. Uh, Nevada was very much an attack on the accuracy of the voting machines that were being used. And in both states, there is a belief, again, not backed up by evidence, that there are lots of illegal voters who vote, um, especially people who have moved or died, somehow come back to cast ballots here. 
Okay. Uh, ben, let's now move on to 11 p.m. Uh, on the East Coast, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. And let's now look at the Blue Fortress that is America's Pacific Coast states. <laughs> Washington State, Ben, uh, a Senate race. Patty Murray, who has been in the Senate since, I think, 1992. Her polls have tightened in the past few weeks. Last I saw, Ben, it had gone from about a 15-point race down to about eight. That's uh, not panic if you're incumbent, but that's not a good trend either. So this is another high watermark uh, Senate race I'd offer. And then Oregon, Ben, uh, the governor's race of all things. Nevada could be electing a Republican governor, which is, if not hell freezing over, it's pretty close to it here on the West Coast. But uh, describe a little bit about Oregon, man, because you have both the governor uh, governor's race and then you also have a couple of interesting congressional races as well. Yeah, you do. So Oregon is uh, is one of those states where the area around Portland is uh, deep, deep blue, but the rest of the state is very red. Uh, Chris Dudley ran for governor in, in 2010, came within about 11 votes, all of them in the Portland area. That, that he Interesting lost. guy, a Republican, a former professional basketball player, went to Yale, I think, real, real interesting guy. Yeah, very interesting guy, came really close. So, so there have been candidates in the past, Republican candidates in the past in Oregon, who have become who have come close uh, to winning, and so you may be seeing that those patterns again. And certainly the um, the demonstrations and the lack of order in Portland uh, in a couple of years ago uh, has really still left a mark on that state. And uh, you know that that's been used effectively there as kind of a wedge issue. Mm-hmm. Well put. Okay. And then uh, what anything to add to Washington State besides just that Patty Murray may or may not survive? No, Tiffany Smiley is is perceived as one of the really great Republican candidates who she was running in a less blue state uh, would would probably win. Uh, and she's made a, uh, a real race out of it, uh, according to all accounts. So again, if there is, if there is a big Republican night, that could wash over into Washington state. Yeah. And that's happened before 1994. Speaker Tom Foley booted. Yes. Then Ben, finally, there's a uh, one last group of states. If you think of an election as a library, these would be the ones racking up the late fees. Uh, this includes Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, California, and New York. Let's start with Pennsylvania. Uh, you and I were talking the other day, Rolling Stone of all people, uh, all, all publications came with a report. Donald Trump is very interested in challenging the results in Philadelphia in that area. Uh, Rolling Stone sees as a lead up to Trump in 2024. But let's just talk about the problems that you have in Pennsylvania trying to resolve this thing this swiftly. Yeah, the, I mean, these four states are certainly important states, and we left them out of the uh, the hourly mm-hmm. uh, rundowns that we gave because you're not going to know results out of those states because of the way they count their uh, their absentee ballots. Maybe should have added Michigan to this category because of the two-day rule. Mm-hmm. But certainly these four uh, recognize that the vote on election day, which tends to be Republican, is going to show very big numbers on election night. But they all have a history of um, of strong absentee ballot voting, and certainly did in, in 2020, so that uh, it's going to take a while for the vote count to be completed, and uh, people should not jump to early conclusions about um, about uh, any of the races in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, California, or New York. 
Ben, is there going to be a fight in Pennsylvania over the permissibility of certain ballots? I, I keep reading articles about federal and state standards and a lot of hue and cry about what's going to actually be admissible. There is a lot of hue and cry. And the Rolling Stone article you referred to uh, was a reference to uh, a supposed meeting in which uh, Donald Trump and his aides talked about challenging the vote in 2020, really picking up on, on sort of what they claimed at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company, but never said in their court filings because uh, the evidence sim simply wasn't there. But, you know, the, the Philadelphia seems to be a particular uh, attraction of the former president. So there may be some, uh, there may be some real ongoing challenges in, in Pennsylvania, sort of seeding the ground for 2024. Yeah, here, Ben, you can kind of appreciate uh, the public's frustration with with the voting system. We go back to the year 2000. You were very involved. You worked for the Bush campaign. You were involved in the Florida recount uh, legal effort. Uh, we all remember the lasting image from that, and that was the Florida election official holding up the the uh, the lens to <laughs> microscopic lens to look at the ballot to determine if the Chad was dangling or not. I think he's trying to guess how much of an imp impression had been made on the ballot. But I think this is what really gets to voters when you have election officials just trying to discern, okay, this is legitimate, that's not. And it seems, I think, to people rather arbitrary. Yeah, and and it's an unfortunate part when election results just don't get done quickly. And Pennsylvania uh, it, it is a place where um, uh, it's very, the, the control of how ballots are counted is very much in the hands of the county officials uh, throughout the state. There's not as strong a central uh, election uh, administration as there are in, in some places. Uh, and so that real local control can cause some, has caused some battles in the past. Yeah. Now, you've listed a few congressional races, Ben. Uh, the Garcia race in California 27. He's a Republican um, <clears throat> incumbent. Uh, his opponent uh, blamed him today in part for Nancy Pelosi's husband being uh, assaulted in their home in San Francisco. So this is not a very pretty race. Uh, you also mentioned the David Valdeo race in the uh, 22nd District in California. Ben, here's one I'd like to point your attention to, and that is the mayor's race in Los Angeles. And it's fascinating in this regard. It is mm. a very establishment Democrat, Karen Bass, uh, member of the House, uh, uh, was on Joe Biden's shortlist for vice president, running against a developer named Rick Caruso. Uh, who at one time was a Republican and became an independent and is now a Democrat. His campaign is run by Democrats. And this is a fight between two people who are nominally Democrats. And there could be been a very ugly argument over how votes are counted in Los Angeles, especially with regard to ballot harvesting. Yes, ballot harvesting is, um, is an issue uh, in certain states that allow individuals, especially partisan individuals, to go out and collect an unlimited number of ballots. And of course, it's complicated in California because it's a state that has made the decision to give to send live ballots through the mail to every registered voter. So people move a lot in California. So you do have a lot of live ballots uh, existing in mailboxes where the proper recipient of them is not there. So uh, the the principle of ballot harvesting, the practice of ballot harvesting is always going to lead, if the elections are tight, to um, a potential problem. 
yeah, the allegation is going to go something like this, Ben, if Caruso loses. Uh, his people pay good money for ballot harvesting. The Bass campaign pays good money for ballot harvesting. The Caruso people will likely qu- uh, cry foul in this regard. They'll say the people we paid to uh, harvest ballots didn't really harvest the ballots because they don't think that we're really a Democrat. So <laughs> that's that's why it's kind of a fascinating race to look at. You're kind of and, you're kind of like, you know, suffer from your own rules. And because California has such uh, lenient rules on when absentee ballots have to be received, and they're counted at such a local level uh, that it's going to be a long time before you know the results of a, of a tight race. Same with New York. And Bill, we should mention two other races, uh, one in Pennsylvania, one in Wisconsin, for the governorship. Uh, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are unique because the governor actually has a much greater say in the election mechanism. Uh, uh, both um, both the Republican candidates in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are election deniers, Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. And so their election meet would mean that two presidential battleground states uh, will really come under a great deal of influence and control from election deniers. My impression is that the Pennsylvania race is not competitive. Is the one in Wisconsin competitive? Uh, it appears to be. Tony Evers is the incumbent, and uh, at least according to the recent polls, it is one to watch, although you'll need to pair binoculars to see it in the distance. Okay, and then finally, been a moment on uh, New York in particular. I want you to look at the governor's race in New York 17, where Sean Patrick Maloney uh, is suddenly fighting for his life so much that Joe Biden has actually been making phone calls into the district to try to help him. The DCCC, which uh, Congressman Maloney chairs, has been funneling money into his own district to save him. This gets to the whole idea, like the 1994 um, uh, election, Ben, that a very large scalp gets claimed. In this case, the chair of the DCCC is a pretty big scalp in Washington standards. Yeah, absolutely. It is a really big uh, is a really big scalp, and uh, the the fact that he is under all this pressure uh, to win uh, gives you a, a sense of what kind of a year this may be. Of course, New York went through a particularly contentious redistricting process, and despite the Democrats' con- political control of the state. Uh, they they proposed maps that were thrown out by a court as just too extreme and uh, gerrymanders inconsistent with the New York Constitution. So there you are, with the chair of the DCCC having to move into new territory and uh, being under electoral assault. And New York has a uh, New York State has a history bent of congressional races that are excruciatingly close and take an excruciating amount of time to settle. Yeah, with an emphasis on the excruciating time to settle. But it all sounds like a good time to be a lawyer. <laughs> the Society of Hourly Builders is quite pleased. Okay, two final questions for you, Ben. First of all, um, I want to throw the scenario of you that the Senate does not get settled on election night. Uh, and that's because Georgia brings in returns, as you mentioned earlier, where no candidate gets over 50% of the vote. Uh, I'm curious, first of all, if you like that law or not. But secondly, we do go to a runoff in Georgia, which I assume would be in early December. This happened in 2020 with two Senate races. It happened, I think, in Louisiana in a previous cycle as well. Uh, 2014, I think it was, Ben, with Mary Landrew. Um, walk us through exactly the legal avenues uh, in this in a runoff. And what are what are campaign lawyers doing? What legally are you chasing down in that state? 
Well, uh, first of all, it's worth noting that uh, in 2020, the runoff was actually in January, early January. Okay. And uh, Georgia realized that that was perhaps a little too late. So it's been moved up to the first week of December. Uh, so so that'll that'll be good. But you have a scenario, Ben, where just both parties would just come down to Georgia in no uncertain terms, each fighting to the death for that Senate seat. So legally, what is going on at that time? Well, the legal, the legal actually in there sort of takes a back seat um, to the political. Whether there's a runoff or not is a matter of math. Uh, there's not much you can do legally with the unofficial votes. You can, you know, if you have evidence of fraud, you could try and get some ballots thrown out, I suppose. Uh, you can uh, potentially challenge ballots, ask for a recount. Um, but a but a runoff election is really a second election, and it's the operative. The the lawyers at that point uh, tend to need to get creative about how to get additional funds into the race, uh, because the candidates' coffers are somewhat depleted by that point. But uh, honestly, in 2020, money was not the problem for either side. Okay. Now, finally, what is Ben Ginsburg doing on election night? Walk us through walk us through your election day and your election night. Well, um, I believe that I will be uh, assisting a major media outlet, and so I will uh, try and do what, what you suggested before, which is exercise and eat well in the morning. And uh, about four to four o'clock, uh, get to the studios and uh, and just kind of watch it all unfold. Really cognizant of what we've been talking about here of the way election results come out. And I guess um, the lawyers, in effect, play a bit of a role in saying, well, yeah, one candidate or another candidate is way ahead. But remember what the laws are about uh, when you count absentee ballots and which part of the state is is already in so that um, you need to be really aware of where where ballots are coming from in the state, which ballots, election day or absentee, uh, get counted first. Um, this, may be, this may be an election bill where you don't know the real results till Wednesday, Thursday, Friday uh, of the week. I mean, you do have 78 toss-up House races. You do have 13 toss-up Senate races. Uh, and so it may um, it may just uh, take a while to get them all in. Uh, of those those 78 toss-up districts I mentioned, 46 are in states that either don't allow counting of absentee ballots till election day, or allow absentee ballots to come in uh, after election day if they're postmarked by election day. So 46 out of 78 toss-ups stand to have late arriving results. So the calling uh, the results of the House early uh, will mean it have to be a real wave one way or the other. Okay, finally, I'm going to put you on the spot, Ben. Once the dust settles from all of this, will it prove to have been a good night, a bad night, or a so-so night for election deniers? Really great, great question. I, I suspect like in everything, when you're looking at races across the country, it's a mixed night. And much of the story will depend on what voting is like uh, on election day. In other words, one of the things that we've heard a lot about are 
uh, a massive number of poll watchers being recruited and trained, mostly on the Republican side, although I think the Democrats will have a lot too. Uh, having poll watchers is an inherently good part of the process. You do want people to look for fraud and irregularities and problems in a polling place. It's only bad if poll watchers uh, weaponize their role and challenge a lot of voters without merit. Uh, and slow down the voting process. Uh, and I think that if uh, what happens in the polling places is orderly and there are no attempts to slow things down, uh, it probably turns out to be a pretty good election. Okay, well, we'll just have to watch and see. Ben, I enjoyed this very much. Thanks for letting me hijack your podcast today. Bill, thanks for uh, thanks for being the host. It was an honor. I'm going to be doing this again after the election. Uh, you've been listening to Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, a Hoover Institution podcast exploring America's election system and the many challenges in the democratic process in this current hyper-partisan environment. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. If you want to learn more about Ben Ginsburg, you'll find his bio at the Hoover Institution's website. That's hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Ben Ginsburg and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. St. Sinners and Salvageables will be back soon after the election. We're going to wait a few days until after the smoke is dissipated before we assess how well the system worked this time around. And I'm going to do a video cast with Ben not long before Thanksgiving, a primer on how to talk politics during the holiday season. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of St. Sinners and Salvageables. Till then, take care. Thanks for listening. If you wouldn't mind, don't forget to vote. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.